Amen. Lord, what an awesome thing to think that we are your treasured possession, that the God who created all things, the thing that you treasure is us. Lord, we're so unworthy, but we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the value you've placed upon us by what you were willing to pay, allowing your son to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much. Lord, may we love you in a deeper and a greater way than we ever have before. Lord, as we go to your word right now, I pray that you would be our teacher. You would minister to every heart that is here. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. So raise your hand so we can get one into your hands. Again, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. And again, if, uh, if you want to take that home, feel free to take that as our gift to you because we would love for you to be in the Word more than Sunday morning and Wednesday night. We're going to start a new book this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But before we do, uh, we're going to take care of some, quote, church business in a sense. You know, one of the things that's happened as our church continues to grow is I think a lot of people don't really know who all the pastors are. And then there are others who say, Man, you got a lot of pastors at that church. And we do. But you know what? Praise God. Amen? Because God is the one who raises them up, not me. One of my prayers when we started this church with a handful of people many years ago was that God would bring the servants first. And He really has. And all of you just have servants' hearts. And God is blessing so much. But what I wanted to do this morning is just take a moment and talk about what a pastor is just briefly. And I want to introduce you to our pastors so you know who they are. Not again because we're to be exalted or anything, but so that you would know who's here to serve you. Who's here to minister to you. Who's been called by God and God's the one who calls them and raises them up and we just recognize it. And then we're also going to, at the end of that, ordain a new pastor this morning. So, just real quickly, in a lot of churches there's confusion between a bishop, an elder, and a pastor. A lot of churches you have pastors, you have elders, and you got some bishop somewhere overseas, the pastors and the elders... And you know what, if churches do that, that's fine. But you know what, that's just not biblical in one sense. Again, dividing them that way. A lot of churches, the pastors are the guys who are on staff full time. The elders are the guys who serve as pastors but still have jobs. And a bishop is a guy somewhere else. But here's, in the Bible, all three of those words are interchangeable. The, ba- the bishop is what he does. He's an overseer. That's what bishop means. He oversees the body. He ministers to the body. The elder is who he is. He's someone who is spiritually mature. It doesn't necessarily equate to age. Remember Timothy, Paul said, you know, don't let him despise you because of your youth. I was called to be a pastor in my early 20s. And so it's really more, and I know people who are are more spiritually mature at 17 than some people are at 70. Amen? And so it's more the level of spiritual maturity, not necessarily their age. Now, certainly a lot of elders can be older, and that's a blessing. But sometimes they're younger as well. And then lastly, a pastor is how he serves. An overseer is what he does. An elder is who he is. And a pastor is how he does it. The word for pastor is a shepherd. It's an under rower. He's the chief servant. It's not the pastors up here and the people down here. It's the people up here and the pastors down here to serve you. Now God has called us to have some authority in the church, in the teaching of the word, and the other pastors keep me accountable, we keep each other accountable, and certainly you're welcome to hold me accountable, I want you to, 
But it's important that I have other, you know, like-minded men alongside of me that minister all of us together to you. Now, I want to say this real clear. We're all called to the ministry. Amen? Not just the men who are going to come up here right now. All of us. God called you to use you. He didn't save you to be a pew potato, if you, you've heard me say many times, right? Not just the biggest, fattest, best-fed sheep, but God saved you to use you to minister to others. So with that being said, the pastors can come on up. I'm just going to introduce them real briefly, tell you what ministries they oversee real quick so you know. Again, if you're new here, you may not even know who they are. All right, this is, this is Pastor Dan. Dan was an assistant pastor at another Calvary for many years. He's been a blessing since he came here. Really has a heart for the body, has a heart for missions, loves to pray with you guys. He's available after services to pray with you. I want to encourage you, if you need prayer, to come on up. You guys know Ken, he's our worship leader, so that, this is Ken. This is Joe Shoup. Now, Joe is one of the guys who's full-time at the office with myself and Pastor Bill. He oversees the men's ministry and the couple's ministry and whatever else gets put on his plate. Over here is Pastor Chris, who is the most boisterous of us all. He's just really loud. It's hard to keep him down, but no. And Pastor Chris, his heart, more than anything else, just to be honest with you, his heart when he came was to, just to assist me. And he's been such an incredible blessing, I can't even tell you. And he really is key in overseeing our finances. He takes care of all the books and things like that. He's a real blessing. And, and of course, all of these guys have the gift to teach the Word. And all of them, if they didn't, they wouldn't be up here. Because that's all part of what a pastor is. This is Pastor Mike. He oversees our children's ministry. If you have kids, you already know who he is. And again, uh, God, he came here, and all of these guys, what I want to say about them first is first is their servants first. When I look for pastors, I don't call pastors, God does. And I look for people who have a heart to serve God first. And the rest of it takes care of itself. You can be the best Bible teacher in the world, and if you don't have the heart of a servant, you're not a pastor. Because that's what a pastor does. Amen? And so Mike, this was a, a guy that is such a, an incredible servant. And I'm just so blessed to have him here. And then lastly, and certainly not least, is Bill, who is my right arm. Bill oversees the, the young adult Bible study and everything else that goes on in our church and he, the radio ministry and all that kind of stuff. So these guys are all such a blessing. It's great to have them here. And I bring them up here just so you know who they are. As our church continues to grow, there's new people. You don't know who they are. Again, we don't have pastors and elders. We're just all pastors because that's the biblical term for it. And with that being said, we have one other guy who's been serving as a pastor here for years, even though we haven't identified it. When we ordain somebody, we're not changing something. We're just identifying what God's already done. So Vince will come on up. If you don't know Vince, he's our youth pastor. And as you guys know, I got a heart for kids. If you don't know, I was a youth pastor for 15 years. And what's really awesome is that Vince was in my youth group in San Jose. So I was his youth pastor. Now he's my kid's youth pastor. And I love that. That blesses me. He and Tiffany both were in our youth group in San Jose. It was my blessing to, to be their pastor, to see them grow in the Lord, and then to do their wedding. And then a few years back, at three or four years ago, we just started our church. Vince was hounding me. I want to come be your youth pastor. I want to come work with the kids. And I kept saying, okay, okay. And he wouldn't leave me alone, and that's how I knew he was called. I said, we don't have any kids yet. He goes, I'll come minister to your kids if that's all you've got. And so our church was really small at the time. He's been here ever since. And so what we're doing, we're just identifying what God's already done. And so I want to pray for Vince and just identify God's calling upon his life. And then we'll take a look at the word this morning. So let's lay hands on Vince. Let's pray for him. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And I just thank you, Lord, for 
Just each of these men and the calling you've placed upon their lives and their faithfulness to serve you and to serve this body here at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. Lord, I thank you for the calling you've placed upon Vince's life. Thank you for the growth I've seen in him as I've watched him from a teenager into a young man and now a, a father, a husband. And, and Lord, just his faithfulness to study and prepare, his faithfulness to really love on our kids, his just desire to really just spend as much time with him as he can, just to talk to him and see him weep over our children. I just love the calling you've placed upon his life. Lord, I just pray you continue to anoint him in a mighty and a powerful way. Use the gifts you've given him for your glory. Lord, we look forward to the years to come as you will use both Vince and Tiffany as a minister to our kids. And Lord, so may you just use the gifts you've given him in a mighty and a powerful way. Lord, I pray you protect his family. You put a hedge of thorns of protection around his home, around his children. We know, Lord, as you use us, that the enemy wants to attack us. So Father, may your hand be upon him. May you just, again, just give him that extra measure of your spirit, Lord, and just to know that you're always with him, Lord. During the difficult times, during the times of great fruit, Lord, may you minister to him and through him. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you, bro. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You know what all of our pastors have in common? Every one of them that I told them I wanted to ordain them, every one of them said I'm not worthy. That's the sign of someone who's called. Amen? Not that, what, what are you been waiting for? Right? But no, I'm not worthy. I can't. That's the sign that God's got his hand on somebody when they, they're in awe and fear and in trembling of being used by God. But their gifts are so evident to those around us, around them. Amen? All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, before we get there, I want to just give you an update and prepare you for this next book because we know, having just spent several months in 1 Corinthians, what the city of Corinth was like. If you're new here and you haven't been here, just real quickly, Corinth was the, one of, if not the most wicked city on the planet. Corinth was a city filled with sexual immorality, a city filled with idol worship, a city that had temple prostitutes, and the church itself, they were fighting with each other, the brothers were suing each other, they were using their, their liberties and didn't care if they stumbled each other, and they were being more impacted by Corinth than they were having an impact on it. Now Paul had planted a church there some five years earlier, and word came to him about how far away they were getting from God. And so he wrote 1 Corinthians to exhort them to get back, to get right with God. He exhorted them about the immorality. He exhorted them about their marriages. He exhorted them about proper worship. And he really touched on their heart in every aspect of life. And so 1 Corinthians is really Paul's exhortation to this church. Corinth was so vile that it was literally the sin city of the day. And when somebody was wicked, they would call him a Corinthian. Correct me, every time I hear the word Corinthian leather, you guys remember those commercials? Wicked leather, I used to think. But Corinthians, Corinthians were the most wicked. So if someone called you Corinthian, it was a put down. And here's this church in Corinth, surrounded by ungodliness, called to be salt and light, but sadly becoming more like the city than they were having an impact on it. And so he writes this letter. Now what had happened as a result of this first, of 1 Corinthians, the letter that came, was it was very polarizing, the letter itself. One of two things happened. Some of the people, when they received the letter, repented. Praise God. Some of the people got the letter from Paul, and he told them, you guys need to, get a, you need to flee sexual immorality. You need to quit being like the world. You need to get your eyes back on God. You need to start serving the Lord again. You need to get your marriages back in order. And you know what? 
a vast majority or a large number of the Corinthian believers did just that. But then there were others that didn't like the message. And so what did they do instead? They started to question and doubt Paul as an apostle. They started to say, oh, this guy's not even called. You know, he's not very eloquent. He's not that good looking anyway. He's not very charismatic. You know, forget about this guy. You know what? He, forget Paul. Who is he anyway? And you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. Do you know today that there are a lot of churches that consider Paul to be a bigot? There are churches out there that say, well, well that, Paul wrote that. That doesn't count. You know what Jesus said about this Bible in your hand? That every word of it is inspired by God. That he elevates his word above all his name. And it doesn't matter who penned it because God wrote it. Amen? And so people will look and say, well, Paul was the author of this, this section, so I don't have to trust it. You know what? That's very popular amongst the homosexuality group today. They'll say, well, Paul was a bigot. That's why he spoke against homosexuality. No, he spoke against it because God said it's wrong. Amen? Now, do we love homosexuals? Yes, but do we approve of homosexuality? Absolutely not. No more than we, than we approve of fornication or adultery or anything else. But see, that's what will happen. People will attack the messenger if they don't like the message. And so they heard the word, they didn't like it, and they attacked. And you know what? Sometimes I get attacked. That's okay. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. Amen? If it's because of my personality, then God forbid, and I need to repent. Because if the word, but if the word of God brings offense, the Bible says the cross of Christ is the stone of offense. Amen? And we will be offended because we're sinners. You know, if you go to a church and you never get convicted, go somewhere else. Amen? Because the word of God should bring conviction to bring us back into right fellowship. And so the response to Paul's letter was that many repented, but sadly, others within the group claimed Paul was proud and he couldn't make up his mind and he was unimpressive and he didn't speak very well and they even accused him of being dishonest and he was unqualified to be an apostle. So Paul writes this second letter to express his thanksgiving for the, re- the majority that repented, but to appeal to the rebellious minority to accept the authority God had given him. So throughout this book, he's going to defend his authority, his conduct, his character, and his calling as an apostle. And Paul writes this letter, and he sends it ahead with Titus, expecting that he's soon going to reach Corinth and be able to talk to them face to face. And a little later, when Paul does reach it, he's going to spend the winter in Corinth and minister to the people who are there. So the theme of, of 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense of his apostleship and God's calling upon his life. I want, I want you to see something as you go through this. You might say, well, who, okay, so Paul's apostleship, that's great. How's that, what does that do for me, right? Sometimes we look at the Bible and we think, how does that apply to my life? But as we look at this letter, I believe this is the letter that best reveals the heart, character, motives, priorities, desires, and emotions of a man or woman called by God. As we go through this text, you're going to see what the heart of someone called by God ought to be. You're going to see the emotions. We're going to see the passion that they should have. And it's going to be a great example for you and I to follow. Paul's going to address the many false teachers who had invaded Corinth, those who got caught up in legalism and spiritual experiences and special knowledge. By the way, if someone comes and tells you that God gave them something new that no one else has ever had before, it's a lie. Amen? The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Can I tell you something? I've been studying this Bible for a little while, and I've got a long way to go. But I've got, got enough to learn right here. Amen? How about you? People start bringing me new books. Put that away. You know, Joseph Smith, I, I don't need that. 
This is the book, amen? This is the one we need to study. This is the one that we need to know. So he's going to address the false teachers who come in trying to bring a different word, a different gospel. And then he's going to talk about several doctrinal truths. He's going to contrast the Old and New Covenant, something that maybe you don't fully understand. When we go through the book, you will. He's going to talk about spiritual warfare. He's going to talk about the proper perspective on, on suffering for Christ. He's going to give new insights on the resurrection that they didn't have prior to this book. He's going to talk about the ministry of reconciling brothers who've fallen away from God. He's going to talk about the importance of being separated from the world. He's going to talk about Christian giving. And then lastly, he's going to talk about the strategies of Satan. Is there some stuff in there that might apply to your life? Amen? We're going to see in Paul's personal life as well, his own hardship, his escape from Damascus, his vision of paradise that God gave him. He's going to talk about the thorn in the flesh. So this is a letter that addresses both Christian doctrine and gives us a great example of how we are to live our lives for God. How to live in the midst of immorality. How to live in the midst of dire circumstances. So all that being said, we come to chapter 1 this morning. I titled the message in chapter 1, Why do Christians have to go through difficult times? Have you ever wondered that before? You know, I'm born again, and I'm going to heaven, and I'm his child. Why do I have to go through difficulty? If God loves me, why do I have to suffer? I mean, I'm his child. Why can't I just escape all of that? Why are there trials and tribulations in my life? Why does James say, count it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, when you fall into various trials? This morning, as we look at the first, Lord willing, 14 verses, we're going to see very clearly three different areas, again, of what, trials are meant to do in the life of a believer. And I want to encourage you, if you're going through difficulty right now, it's an opportunity for you to grow. This is the greatest time of growth is during the time of greatest difficulty. You know, people say, Lord, I just give my life to you, and I, Lord, I want to be more like you, and I want to grow, and I want to be used mightily. Get ready. Amen? Now people say, I don't want to pray that prayer. I might go through some trials, right? But I, can I tell you something? God is so good. And all he does in you and through you, he wants to grow you, that you might be used more for his kingdom, and you might have greater joy in your walk with God. So it's an opportunity for you to grow spiritually, and it's an opportunity for you to show to others the love and grace and peace of God to a lost and hurting world. So the three areas we're going to see this morning, why do Christians go through difficult times? Number one, that I may know his comfort. I go through difficulties that I may know his comfort. And through that, I may be able to comfort others. That's verses 1 through 7. In verses 8 through 11, that I may come to the end of myself and, and again, stop being self-reliant and become desperate for God. You know what? Trials will bring us to the end of ourself when nothing else will. We have to sometimes get to the place where we can't do it. I can't do it. It's impossible. No matter how hard I try, no matter how, how much I work at it, I can't change what's before me. That's when we're desperate for God, and that's when we come to the end of ourselves, and that's when we grow. And then lastly, it gives us an eternal perspective. It changes us how we minister here and now. It changes just the way that we live our lives. When we go through trials and difficulty, it changes what's really important in life. You know what? People that are pursuing, you know, I want to have a $5 million house, then I'll be happy. And then you get cancer. And now you don't know if you're going to live till next year. Guess what? That house isn't very important anymore, is it? Priorities change when you go through difficulty. And praise God that He is sovereign and in control. And nothing comes into your life 
while walking in obedience that God didn't bring to make you grow. So when it comes, say, praise the Lord. Amen? Not always easy, but praise the Lord. So let's begin in verse 1. Why do Christians have to go through difficult times that we may know His comfort, that we may comfort others? Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, remember what I said. Paul begins his letter by reasserting his authority as an apostle. The people in Corinth, those who rejected the letter, were saying he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't called by God. He wasn't God's man. You know, early on in ministry, uh, I'll never forget it, my uncle got a hold of a tape that I had taught. And it was a message I taught on a Sunday morning in Southern California. I was still a youth pastor. I was in my mid-20s at the time, I think. And a bunch of people got saved that day. And God just did a great work. It had nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. My uncle, who's a seminary professor, writes me a 15-page letter on why I should never teach the Bible again, how I'm not called by God, how I have no business, I destroyed the text, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't... I mean, just ripped me, right? And you know what? Praise God that my uncle didn't call me, but God did Amen? Because if I'm trying to win the approval of men, I'm going to be worried about what every man says. But you know what? All I'm concerned about is what does God say? And God is the one who calls us. And God is the one who gives us the gifts He's given us. And we don't need the approval of men. We just need to be obedient to the leading of God. Amen? And Paul's saying, look, I am an apostle. And look what he says there. By the, what? An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, not by the voting of men. Amen? We don't vote for who the pastors are here because you might have a friend here and you want to vote for him. And he's not called. Amen? And there could be someone else who's called and you don't like his haircuts. You don't vote for him or whatever, right? And it's because we don't, you know, it's not congregational rule in the Bible. It's a theocracy. God's in charge. We're not. Amen? And so he alone is the head of the church and he's the one who anoints and he's the one who calls and he's the one who leads and he's the one who directs and we follow him. And he's saying, look, I'm an apostle not because I'm a great guy, not because I've done great works, but by the will of God. Not the will of Paul, not the will of the Corinthian believers. And Paul doesn't back down because he knows for sure that God has called him. Again, Christianity today is under attack. May we not wilt in the face of opposition, but boldly stand up and do what God has called each one of us to do. Even if we feel like we're outnumbered, a voice crying out in the wilderness, like Paul felt, no doubt, in writing part of this letter. He still knew what he was called to do, and he's still going to be obedient to it. You know, Pastor Vince, this last, about a week and a half ago, I'll embarrass him, but there was a thing up in Scotts Valley High. And they've got these pro-homosexual posters all over. If you're gay, questioning, transgendered, and wear your dress to school if you're a guy, that's fine, and all this kind of stuff. So some Christian parents stood up and said, that's just wrong. Why are you pushing your agenda on us? And so they had this meeting, and person after person was pro-homosexuality. And, oh, man, we need to, you know, we need to protect them. And, you know, this is the civil rights movement of the 2000s. What a, what a bunch of garbage. And praise God for Pastor Vince being there who stood up and said, you know, and just shared the truth of the gospel and did it in love. That's Apostle Paul's heart here. Look, guys, I'm called by God. It's God who prompts me. I'm going to obey him. Amen? And Paul said, God called me. It's by the will of God. Everything that we do in ministry is by the will of God. We weren't called by men, we're called by God. Paul was an apostle who was called directly by the Lord. You know, he could say that with great authority, couldn't he? You guys remember he's on the road to Damascus? What's he doing? He's on his way to capture and potentially even kill some Christians. He gets knocked off his horse and says, Who are you, Lord? 
and says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus spoke to him and blinded him. And then he became a great follower of Christ. He went from Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, and he says, I've been called. And so whether you guys vote on it or not, and whether the whole Corinthian church is against me, it's irrelevant. God called me, and I'm going to obey that. I want to encourage you, that should be an exhortation to all of us, that we respond to the voice of God. Again, you've got to love what God did in Paul's heart, how he did a 180. And Paul's calling hadn't come from men, it had come from God. What has God called you to be? What has God called you to be if you're in the room this morning? If you're born again, He's called you to something. He's called you to use you by the will of God. He has given you gifts. You have gifts that I don't have. And I have gifts that you don't have. And others in this room have gifts that you don't have. And you have gifts that others in this room don't have. And we come together as a body to use our gifts so that we can all function together. If we were all eyes, where would be the hearing, the Bible says. So when God brings you here, He's got a gift that He's given you, and He wants to use you for His glory. If if I was writing this, I would say, Dave, a pastor, teacher, father, and husband by the will of God. Because that's nothing to do with me and everything to do with Him. Others of you here, you might say a a mechanic, a Sunday school teacher by the will of God, a full-time mom and Bible study leader by the will of God, a missionary by the will of God. And you know what? Can I encourage you? Pray about what what God has called you to do. God is not hiding His calling from you. He's not hiding it from you. He wants to... Does God want to use you? Yes, He does. All He's waiting for is not ability, but availability. Say, here I am, Lord, use me. And God will answer that prayer every single time. And again, that true calling comes from God and not men. It's God's job to call people one of the things that frustrates people you've heard me say this before if you've been here any length of time i won't call you to do anything i won't you're gonna have to be like vince hunting me down i i want to work with the youth right because if i call you i have to sustain you if i call you and ask you to do something a lot of you because you like me maybe a little bit you'll do it oh well the pastor asked me i better do it right i don't want anybody to do anything because i asked you to do it I want you to do it because God has called you and it's burning in your heart and you can't not do it. Amen? There's a difference between calling and, you know, gifting and calling. You know, it's a get to and it's not a have to. If you get up and go, man, it's my turn to teach those kids, right? Don't do it anymore. Amen? If you wake up and say, you've been praying for those kids by name all week and you're excited because it's your turn, that's calling. Amen? And Paul was that kind of man, an apostle by the will of God, called by God, not by men. And praise the Lord that he works in that way. My, my philosophy of ministry, just so you guys know, as your pastor, I pray, I have areas of ministry I would love to see us do. Sometimes I share what those areas are, but I'll never call you to do it. But what I really love is when I'm praying about something and someone shows up in my office or after church on a Sunday and says, man, God's been turning me over at, at night. I can't even sleep. This is the burden on my heart and it's something I've been praying about. Then I know it's God and not me. Amen. And then we can go for it full force because we know God is the one who who is behind it, not any man. No man manipulated you into ministry. God called you into ministry. And again, if you've been called by God, don't be deterred by men. Paul certainly wasn't. And Timothy, our brother. Who's Timothy? Timothy, he referred to as his son in the faith. Timothy was the one he wrote 1 and 2 Timothy to, and that's a pastoral epistle. And he was talking about Timothy saying, don't despise him because of his youth. Don't despise Pastor Vince because of his youth. Don't despise me when I was in my 20s because of my youth. Don't despise Greg Laurie when he started Harvest when he was 19. 
You know, it's calling. And praise God that Timothy was a man who was faithful. Timothy had been with Paul when he planted the church in Corinth. And so they knew who he was. And he was with Paul at this time, comforting him, with him in ministry. And he writes this letter back, letting him know that Timothy is there with him. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia. Now it's interesting that this letter, like all of them, is written to believers. He says, to the church of God, and with all the saints. And what's interesting is, what does he call the church in Corinth? He calls them saints. Now, the way they were living, they should have been ain'ts, amen? I mean, these guys were a mess. But what does he call them? He calls them saints. You know why? Because we're not saints based on our works, but we're saints based upon his work, amen? We're saints because of the cross. Now, should we live holy and set apart lives? Absolutely. Does God want to do a work in and through us? Without question. But are we saved because of the amount of work we do? Absolutely not. It's by faith we've been saved not of works lest any man should boast and so he calls these these people in Corinth he calls them saints we well, also notice here to all the saints who are in Achaia that's the surrounding region this proves yet again that all these letters were written and were to be distributed amongst all the churches this is not just an individual letter for an individual church that's why we still read it today God gave it specifically for that church but it was to be distributed to the other believers as well so again we are called to be saints. This letter is written to saints, so it applies to each one of us. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How often do you see grace and peace together in the Bible? Always. Why? They've been called the Siamese twins of the Bible. They're always joined at the hip, right? You never see them apart. Why? Because without grace, there can be no peace. Amen? You know, I, 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 years ago, I used to go on... Uh, when the first came out, I'd go on chat lines to witness to people. was never very effective, I have to tell you. Every once in a while. But I'd go on chat lines, you know, and, and I'd go on there and I'd just start talking about Jesus. And, you know, people would start putting all bold caps. I learned, later learned that meant they were yelling at me, but that's okay. But they, they'd come after you and they're writing stuff to you. And I remember telling this one guy, you can't have peace. What are you talking about? I have all kinds of peace. Yeah, I can tell by your, you know, your typing. But you can't have peace if you don't have Christ. You cannot have peace if you don't know the Prince of Peace. Amen? People are trying to find peace by having enough money in the bank account, by having the right relationship, by getting the promotion at work. If I just get this, then I'll have peace. And you know what? Haven't we all been guilty of that to some level? Amen? I remember when I was first married, I had a dollar amount. If I had this amount of money in the bank, then I would be comfortable. And that's not true, is it? That's Rockefeller. How much money do you need to have to have peace? He said, a little bit more. Was it one million, five million? A little bit more. Whatever it is, you've got to have more. You know what? May we learn to be content right where we are with the Lord and not think that some accomplishment down the road is going to bring us the peace we've been waiting for. Come to know Christ and know the Prince of Peace and you can have peace living in a hovel. Amen? Greater peace than someone living in a mansion. Because you cannot have grace without peace. That's why they're linked together. You've heard me say this many times. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Not something you've earned, but a free gift given by God. In Galatians 5.22, it tells us the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, and peace. So only through grace may we have peace. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
From God our Father reminds us that we are the children of God. Our Father is the source of peace. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as were Paul and the Corinthian believers. We're sons and daughters not by ancestry but by adoption. I love that. You know what I love about adoption? He chose me. Amen? He wasn't stuck with me. He chose me. Not that I'm stuck with my kids. Don't get me wrong, right? I love my kids. But you know what I mean? When you have children, there it is. There's your children. But when you adopt somebody, you literally, you choose a child. And you pick them and you bring them into your family. And that's what God has done with us. He adopted us into his family. And not by right, but by redemption. He's our God and he's our Father. And what a blessing to know that. And the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's not his first, middle, and last name. A lot of times people think, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Like, that's his... Okay, let me just real quickly. Jesus is his name. It's also the name Yahshua or the name Joshua. What does it mean? The Lord is salvation. It means God is salvation. Okay, Savior, Deliverer. Lord is a title. It signifies my relationship to him. I am the servant. He is my master. Romans 10.9 says, I must confess him as what? To be saved. Lord. Not just Savior, but Lord. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So it's not good enough just to say, I believe that Jesus is God and I want him to give give me the get out of hell free card and now I'm going to go live like the world. It's giving my life completely to him and making him Lord of my life completely. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Christ means anointed one or Messiah. So he is the Lord. He is the source of salvation. He's the one who we serve and follow. He is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. Nobody else can be called Lord. Nobody else can be called Christ. Amen? There are other, you know, other people have the name Joshua. Other people, you know, especially in Hispanic cultures today, a lot of people name their kids Jesus, right? Jesus. But none of them is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? There's only one. There's only one path to heaven, and there's only one way to salvation. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of mercy, mercies, and the God of all comfort. The word blessed means praise be unto. Paul opens this letter by praising God, who has shown so much mercy and comfort to Paul. You know what? When we think about what God has done for us, how can we stop worshiping? Can I encourage you? You know what I really think one of the biggest signs of where someone's heart is? How they worship. Or if they worship. You know, if you spent, you know what, you can be a Bible scholar, and if you don't have a heart to worship God, you've missed it. You've missed it. Because it's not just knowing the Word of God, it's knowing the God of the Word. It's not just knowing what He says, but having intimate fellowship with Him. And one of the most intimate things we do with the Lord is we worship Him. Amen? Is he worthy to be worshipped with, with what he's already done for you? I mean, and you know what? It should, that should just be bursting out of our hearts. I mean, sometimes I'm driving in my car and I have to pull over. I'm just weeping and worship with the Lord because he's such an awesome God and he's worthy to be worshipped. Amen? And my heart would be that we as a church would worship. No, we never want the focus off of him. I don't want people running around here with banners in their hand or anything, Okay? If you do that at your church, God bless you. But here, you know what? I don't want people, why? I just want people looking up, not at you, amen? Where everybody's run, but I don't want us to all feel like we have to be robots, right? The Bible says lifting up holy hands, amen? And it's I surrender. Don't we surrender to God? Isn't he Lord of all? Isn't he worthy to be worshiped? 
And so that should be our heart as we worship the Lord. Blessed be, praise be unto you for all that you've done for me. The God of all comfort. The word there is paraklesis. The idea behind the word is more than just sympathy, but it's strengthening and helping and making us strong. He makes us strong in the midst of difficulty, as we're going to see as we continue on. The Latin word for that word there is, means brave. He's get, the God of all comfort, he's given me bravery, he's made me brave, he's given me that peace that surpasses all understanding, and it flows from the mercies he had experienced. He was a man of two, true faith, and he speaks of comfort before he speaks of trials and tribulations. Now he's going to start talking about the trials he's been going through, but before he does, he talks about the comfort of God. Can I encourage you, if you're always whining about your trials, stop it. Amen? That's a great testimony, isn't it? And God's just dragging me through the ringer again. Where do you go to church? I'd love to join you on Sunday, right? That's just... He says, man, God, praise be unto God, who is the God of all mercy and comfort. Praise the Lord. And then he says, yeah, I need to make you aware of the trials. But again, Paul found general, genuine comfort in God, and you will too, as you go through trials and difficulties of life. And we'll keep our eyes on God of all comfort instead of our circumstances. Why did he say the God of all comfort? Because every time he went through difficulty, God was there. And the, one of my favorite examples in the Bible is found in Mark uh, 4 and Luke 8. Don't turn there. But Jesus told his disciples to get into the boat. They get into the boat. What does he tell them? We're going to the other side. So they get in the boat. They start to go to the other side. The storm kicks up. And the Lord is doing what? He's sleeping. The, war, the, wa- the waves are so big that a lot of these guys are fishermen. So they've been in storms before, so this was gnarly. If the fishermen are panicking, I've been deep sea fishing and gotten violently ill, but the captain's over there eating cheese sandwiches, man. I'm like, dude. He's like, and the waves are, you know, look like they're five stories tall, and he's over there eating a sandwich. Yeah, no problem. So if he's scared, that's not good, right? These guys are panicking, and they start to cry out to God, don't you care? Don't you care, Lord? And they go and they wake him up. We're all going to die. We're perishing. And the Lord gets up and says, oh, you little faith. And he speaks the word and the storm goes away. And you know what? If they had their eyes on Jesus instead of on the storm, they wouldn't have panicked. Amen? Because Jesus was sleeping. If they had their eyes on Jesus, they'd have said, you know, give me a pillow. Let me, you know, I'm going to lay down too, right? I'm going to rest. And same is true for you and I. If we have our eyes on the storm, we're going to panic. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, in the midst of the storm, we'll be at peace. Amen? Because he's always in control and he's always faithful. And so he is encouraging them that, I, that he's a God of all comfort. He will comfort you in the midst of the storm. He will comfort you in the midst of trials and great difficulty. Praise the Lord for that. Verse 4. Who comforts us in our tribulation. Now, He comforts us in all our tribulation. Our God not only grows us through trials, but He comforts us when we're in them. One of my favorite songs that used to be on the radio is that one of the lines is, sometimes He calms the storm and He whispers, peace be still, but other times He he holds us close and lets the winds and waves go wild. Sometimes He calms the storm and other times He calms His child. Some of you may have heard that song before. And sometimes He does say, rebuke the wind. But other times, he lets the wind go that we might grip closely to him and see that he's faithful in the midst of those trials and struggles. You know what? When we pray and ask God to, to take away the trial and he doesn't, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. It just means 
that He's going to grow us through it. Amen? I want to encourage you that when you pray and you feel like He hasn't answered, He has answered. And He's keeping you where you are for a reason, and He's going to allow you to grow through it. Take your eyes off the storm and put your eyes on the Savior. It's through trials and difficult suffering and grief that we experience His comfort and that peace that surpasses all understanding. Why should, you, why should God allow me to suffer since He's in control? If He loves me, why does He allow me to suffer? That you might grow spiritually, that you might experience His comfort, that you might be able to comfort others. You know, Paul went through more difficulty than any Christian I know of. He went through more than any Christian I know of. And you know what? Because of that, he knew the Lord's comfort, and because of that, he was able to comfort others. You know, sometimes you go through a difficulty, and as just like Paul could say, I've been where you are. I don't think there's almost anything that somebody could go through where Paul couldn't say, I know what you're talking about. We're going to read in a minute the list, and Paul went through it. But you know what? Sometimes we go through difficulties that we don't understand at the time, but God is going to use it to minister to somebody else down the road. You know, Lynette and I, we lost our first child. And after years of trying, and I'll never forget just the, the joy to the heartache, taking out my parents to dinner to celebrate, and then not many days later, losing the baby, and my wife having emergency surgery, and all these things that happened, and that joy going to heartache, and wondering, God, why did you allow this to happen? And can I tell you how many people, having been in ministry all these years, I've been able to minister to who are in that exact same spot, and I can say, I know exactly how you feel. I've been right where you are. I know exactly what you're going through. Some of you know, I don't want to go into details, but I have a, a chronic stomach problem that bothers me every day of my life. But you know what? In a lot, and don't take this wrong. In a lot of ways, I'm glad I have it. You know why? Because God gives me greater compassion for people going through chronic stuff. I can say, I understand. I know what you're going through. I understand. And you know what? Paul had a thorn in his flesh that he prayed three times, asked God to remove it, and God never did. But he knew that, okay, Lord, you've got it in my life for a reason. Lord, I trust you. Maybe you're here and you've got a chronic ailment of some kind. Let God use it for his glory. Don't, uh, don't let that be something that causes you to doubt God or question God or be mad at God. But instead say, okay, Lord, use this however you want to use it for your glory. The tribulations and trials and suffering and difficulty is an opportunity to see God work, to be a godly testimony, to be a source of spiritual growth, to prepare you for ministry. Look what he says there. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of my favorite Bible teachers is a guy by the name of John Corson. You know, he lost both his wife and his daughter to car accidents, many years apart from each other. And you know, I know pastors who, and people I've talked to who have lost children and been hurt, and I, you know what, I encourage them, call John Corson. Not that I can't minister to him, because I can. Not that I can't share the love of God, but I can't. But I, I don't fully understand what it's like to lose a child, and I don't want to. I don't want to. But you know what? It's good that there are those who can say, I've been right where you are. And let me tell you what God did. Let me tell you how God comforted me. Let me tell you how faithful the Lord is in the midst of trials and difficulty. God allows us to go through trials that we might be able to comfort others. Verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So he says there that our sufferings, we have suffering in our walk with God, but because of that, that suffering comes from Christ, we also have that same peace that comes from Christ. I don't have time to read all of it, but just a quick list of Paul's suffering here. If you get a chance later, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he says here, 
Are, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night, a day and a night, I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, and besides all the other stuff that happens to me every day. People say, man, I want to be Paul. Okay. Because you know what? Without a test, there can be no testimony. Amen? And Paul was able to comfort others because he had received the comfort of God. And the sufferings that he went through were sufferings that came from God, that God allowed to come into his life, that he might be used for his glory. But with the suffering came the comfort. Who's the comforter? Who's the comforter he gave us? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came. He will, I will send you another, a comforter, right? And he comforts us in the midst of these difficult times. So the sufferings of Christ abound in us. He's saying we go through difficulty, but praise God, along with the suffering comes the peace. Again, Jesus was not distant from Paul in his trials. He was right there identifying with him. He was right there standing alongside him. And the same is true for you and I. When you go through difficulty, the Lord is right there. He has not left you. He loves you. You are his child. Can I tell you something? We are to, I love all my children the same, but there are times when one of them is more special in my heart. You know what it is? When that one's hurting. When one of my kids is hurting, that one becomes the one most special in my eyes for that time. When one of my kids is going through a trial, I, my heart breaks with them, and I spend extra time with them, and I love on them even more, and I want them to crawl up in my lap, and I want to hold them close. And you know what? That's how God feels about you. When you're going through that trial and that difficulty, he wants to comfort you and come alongside you and encourage you and strengthen you through that difficulty that you might grow. And I want to make it real clear, though. If you go through difficulty because of rebellion, you're on your own. Amen? If you turn your back on God and say, I don't care what God says, I'm going to go do this. And then trials come, all right. Now, the good news is you can take a million steps away from God, but it's only one step back. No matter how far away you've gotten from the Lord, He's right there, and you can turn right back and return to Him. But if you're in rebellion, it says in 1 Peter 4, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in the matter. Again, it's not suffering that produces growth and is comforted by God. It's not just suffering, but it's suffering in the center of God's will. It's walking according to Him. It's not pain that produces holiness. Don't get, don't, can I make something real clear? Don't fall into the trap. You see these guys sticking needles in their face to prove they love God? You seen this? I'm not talking about our God, but whatever pagan God they're serving. It's not pain that produces holiness. All right? But in the midst of trials and difficulty, we can draw near to God and we can grow spiritually. Sometimes we think comfort can come only through a change of circumstances, but sometimes God wants to leave us right where we are. He wants us to have peace in the midst of the difficulty, to trust God in the midst of the circumstances. Verse 6, For if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. 
or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. If Paul and the other pastors or other ministers with him had been afflicted, it was for the sake of the people. God had a larger purpose in Paul's suffering than working on Paul himself. He also wanted to use it as a testimony to the world around him. You know what? When, it, when do the unbelievers you know look at you the closest? When you're in the midst of difficulty. They'll, say, they'll even say behind your back, oh yeah, it's real easy to follow God when everything's good. We'll see when things get tough. And when things get tough, it's the greatest opportunity to be a testimony. Then let, let them know, you know what? I'm not alone. The Lord comforts me in the midst of all that I'm going through. Man is the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken. Everything else is of less value. But when we go through difficulty and we come to the end of ourselves and we are broken before God, that's when we become more valuable to His kingdom. That's when His Spirit can flow right through us and there's nothing getting in the way when we stop being about ourselves. And He endured that same suffering. Again, you've got to love the fact that the suffering that we endure is nothing that Christ didn't endure first. He can, he can understand everything you've been through and a lot more. Amen? And he, and he did it because He loves you. And He will never give you more than you can handle. And God's comfort allows us and helps us to endure. And so Paul, if Paul is suffering, he's suffering so that he can minister to others. And so it can minister to others. And if he is comforted, it's so that God can use him to bless others. Suffering or comforted, it wasn't about Paul. It was always about others. Remember this, guys. We're not going to get to verse 14, I can tell you already. But let me tell you this, you guys. I love the acronym for joy. J-O-Y. Jesus, others, yourself. If you put Jesus first and seek to minister to others next and put yourself last, you will have joy. Because you won't be worried about the circumstances. You'll realize, Lord, bring the circumstances on if it's going to draw me closer to you. Bring the circumstances on if it's going to conform me more to your image. Lord, if it's going to make the stuff of this world less important to me, then do it. Because, Lord, I want to seek you above all else. Again, living a life not running from conflict, trials, and circumstances, or pursuing personal comfort, but to impact a lost world. You know what? We should be more worried about the salvation of the person next to us than how comfortable we are in our house. Amen? Now, I'm not saying we all have to go sleep on beds of rocks, okay? A lot of times people take it to the other extreme. Oh, you have a bed? Man, you're, you're, man, you're carnal, Right? <laughs> I'm not talking about that. But what I'm saying is that our passion ought to be more on reaching others than our own personal comfort. Verse 7, And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake in the consolation. Now I love this because he says very clearly that he knew that because they were suffering that God would comfort them. You know, I can look across the table at somebody I'm counseling and I can let them know without question and without doubt, the Lord has not left you alone. The Lord loves you. The Lord is with you in this. The Lord will comfort you through this if you will let Him. This is an opportunity for you to grow. Don't curse God. Don't blame God. Don't be mad at God. Say, okay, God, show me what you want to do in my life through, this, through these trials. Well, there it is. That's where we're going to stop because we have communion this morning. All right? Praise God, we teach verse by verse of the Bible. I can pick up in verse 8 next week. But I want to say this, just to sum up what we will see through the verse 14 verses. Why does God allow us to go through trials that we might know His comfort and that we might be able to comfort others? Well, we will see next week that I may come to the end of myself. You know what? 
the number one of the biggest sins that we all struggle with is pride. Amen? And if you don't think you're proud, you're being proud thinking you're not proud. <laughs> right? Pride is the origin of all sin. It's when I think that I don't deserve this, when I don't feel like people should treat me that way. May we, again, come to the end of ourselves through our trials, and may it cause us to look up and place our eyes on the Lord. And then as we'll also see next week, that lastly, that as we go through trials, as we go through struggles, as we go through these difficulties of life, that God has a plan also to give us an eternal perspective. He wants us to take our eyes off the world and get our eyes on God. He wants us to quit looking at the, at the waves and start looking at the Savior. Amen? You know what? If you're going through a trial this morning, get your eyes off the trial and get your eyes on the Savior. Is God greater than any trial you could ever have? Absolutely. Sometimes He calms the storm, other times He calms His child. Don't allow the storm to get your eyes off of God. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den and he was napping and worshiping and praying and resting. Darius, who threw him in the lion's den, was up in the palace, and he was tormented all night long. Why? Because it's better to be in the lion's den with the Lord than in the palace without him. Amen? And for each of us, whatever storms may come your way, whatever difficulties may come your way, say, okay, Lord, you're going to grow me through this. Okay, Lord, an opportunity for me to, to be comforted by you, to become more like you, to be able to minister to others through this. Lord, teach me what you want to teach me and grow me the way you want to grow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the trials you bring into our life. Lord, I know it's so hard to pray and say thank you for the trials. But Lord, we do thank you. We do help us to count it all joy in the midst of difficulty, knowing, Lord, there's an opportunity for us to grow in our relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you that you never leave us alone, no matter how difficult things around us may be. Father, as we go to this time of communion, Lord, I pray for each of us that we would examine our own hearts before you, that we would not come to your table unworthily, but Lord, that we, as we do this, we would do this in remembrance of you, looking back to the cross, looking within and examining our own hearts, and looking forward to heaven. So Lord, we love you. We dedicate this time to you. May this time observing the Lord's Supper be a time of worship, and again, just being knit closer to the God of all comfort, the God of all mercy, the God of all love and all grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Real quickly, communion or Lord's Supper as we take it here. Calvary Chapel, we don't have membership. You show up, you're a Christian, you're part of the family. Amen? The Lord's Supper is for believers. And when we do it, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We're looking back to the cross of Christ where all of our sin was paid for. Your sin can be paid for no other place but the cross. And so as we take communion or the Lord's Supper, the, the bread is a representation of His body which was broken for you, and the juice is a representation of His blood that redeemed us from all of our sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to, the, the, the worship team is going to lead us in some worship. You guys just come on up and grab the elements. Go back and sit down. And before you take communion, just come before the Lord and examine your own heart before Him. Praise Him for what He has done for you on the cross. Thank Him for His forgiveness. And then, again, also in anticipation when we will one day have that supper with Him in heaven. Amen? Let's pray for communion. Lord, we do pray for this time of 
of communion and the Lord's Supper, and I do pray for each of us that it would not be a, a ritual we observe, but Lord, a time sitting at your feet, drawing near to you, examining our own hearts, a time of praise and thanksgiving for what you have done, doing it in remembrance of you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.